Hello and welcome to From the Rookery End. Oh, it's been a week off. It's been lovely. I've had my feet up. No, I haven't. I've had a list of things to do. Thank you, International Breaks. Uh, my name's John. Uh, and as we do this little pre-Luton Town Away uh, podcast, I'm joined by Brigadier Colin Mace. Good evening. Can I say evening or should I just say hello? Because it's hello, like yeah. people listen to it at any time of the, the day or night. Can't wait for Saturday. It's uh, the excitement's building in my house. I just had a uh, dinner with uh, Lily and she said, oh my God, I'm so excited. I've never looked forward to a football match more than this one. So I feel like this is the end of a cycle of my footballing and Watford slash Watford education for both my girls who would attend the kennel for the first time on Saturday. And I have to say that, as I say, the excitement... Uh, and trepidation in, on my part is, uh, is building. I think they're only excitement, but I'm, I'm feeling a little bit nervous about it, to be honest with you, John. And, and Mike's here also. Why do England start matches really well, but then fade? Because <laughs> they watch too much Watford. Because they're two nil up. <laughs> Could be. But they, they seem to have done it. It's a bit of a bugbear for me. You did mention the international break, John. Yeah. It got me thinking while Cole went off on one about Luton, because I'm trying to do anything but think about what lies in wait on, on Saturday. <laughs> Come on, Mike. Face the fear. Stop it. The big games that England have played, Watford don't exist for now, they start really well, and then they just... Anyway, one, one to ponder, I think, that, isn't it? There is, that's, is that Gareth Southgate's big international Achilles heel? Uh, start, well, of a doubt. start well in the big games, but can't see them through. Perhaps there's a podcast uh, in another day, but hello. So we're, we're going to talk about about this Luton game coming up, uh, the rest of the season, the, 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 the run-in, as uh, it's better known as, the tail end of the season, uh, and what it means and what we think about it and what we're... The fag end for us. The I'm fag end. Idiot, really. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, the stumble. Yeah, yeah. So, what, so this Luton game away, I, I don't know about you, and it's I find this quite hard to really figure out. I don't know where it comes from, but I, I'm i not feeling the same about this rivalry as I used to. I'm not as worked up about it. I, I almost feel like I have this distance to it, not because of their name and who they are, but the rivalry I had with Luton growing up is a feels like a completely different team. And I, I suppose maybe if I was at the kennel on Saturday... It would all just kick in. I, I'd, I'd feel it. It, it would all. I, I, I just, my brain hasn't made that connection, but I feel more wound up about other teams than I do about them. Let me let me come in because I know Colin's going to be there on on Saturday. I'm, yeah. I'm not, so I'm gonna, I'll I'll go first. Get my little bit out of the way, and then <laughs> and then and then let Cole come in. I think part of part of it is that is completely understandable, John, because we haven't played them really in any meaningful way for such a long time. There will be generations of, of people who who haven't seen us play in the in the flesh. There was the we've obviously had time apart. Luton were all the way out of the league at one stage. Um, then we when we did were in the same division. We um, it was behind closed doors. Then we got promoted. So this is the first time in a long, long time that that, that there are actually going to be proper derbies. So part of me thinks I totally understand where you, where you're coming from. The games changed a little bit. Watford have been so sort of poles apart from Luton for so long that they've 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 been in irrelevance haven't they in in reality but so I, I do get it but uh, and I think I'm one rung down from Colin but I still this is it's still the game and and I'll tell you why I think that I speak for the majority the atmosphere at Vicarage Road before the game this season was like nothing I've I don't think I've ever heard at Watford before I thought the atmosphere ahead of the Derby game this year was phenomenal. 
the the drowning out of the reading out of the of, of the opposition team names with with the whistles. It was it was like continental, and I've never heard Watford uh, fans so unified and sort of hell bent on making a a, a a raucous atmosphere as as they did that day. I absolutely loved it, and I think. We were a little bit lucky with the with the weather beforehand because it meant I think it cleared the streets of any any nonsense beforehand. So kind of everyone sort of got to the ground and got on with it, got on with what these derby days should always be about, which is the atmosphere and then and then the football. And I thought obviously the the result means we look back on it on it fondly, but I thought the atmosphere leading up to it was I was talking to someone about the Premier League this this weekend and and how. Uh, it was sort of we're trying really hard to get somewhere we don't want to be, which is the Premier League. But I said, Premier League match days feel like event days, and and I stand by that. This was this was a a level up. You don't win a cup, you don't win a trophy, you get that that intangible bragging rights. You get that spring in your step, not just for the for the next couple of days like you do it with a normal win, but for the potentially the rest of the season, or until you play them again. It's it's enormous, and I, I I love I hate it and love it. But th- this year, that atmosphere—I don't know if you guys agree—I thought was absolutely extraordinary, and it was. Um, I love being a part of it. Maybe that's my other problem because I missed that game. I was away on ah. holiday, so maybe that's that's my problem. So it's it's, it's just me, everybody. It's just me. <laughs> so I think I make you right and wrong, John, and I let me tell you why. So uh, rivals are really important in sport because they are a facet of our identity, not just as uh, football fans. I, you know, a person's identity, and I don't mean to get too profound here, but a person's identity is made up of many, many things. So, for instance, you know, family members, the school you went to, the, the kind of career that you've chosen, the passions that you have in your life. And the football club, if football is your thing, is part of your identity. It's not a hobby, let me tell you. <laughs> if it's a hobby, we're all mugs. So it's not a hobby because it's not going to do a bit of pottery, do you know no, what I mean, or, or no. getting a nice tennis racket and playing tennis with your friends. That's a hobby. This is not a hobby. This is something more because we pay money to do it. Uh, and uh, as I pointed out to my friend, we're the only people in the ground who have paid to be there. Everyone else is paid to be there except us. Um, so it becomes very deeply rooted. If football, as I say, is your thing, and I've had to explain this to people who don't really get football and don't understand why I'm about to spend 500 quid on a season ticket to watch a team that's useless. <laughs> but um, it is part of some, a part, becomes a part of our DNA, part, especially if you start following a club when you're a kid and it, it gets tied up with the people that took you and then the people that you take. So in my case, my mum took me. Now I'm taking my kids, as I said, first time uh, to Kenilworth Road on Saturday. You know, your identity changes as you get older. In my teens and uh, 20s, there was a a frisson that I might get involved in something. You know, there might be a a running battle in Rucker's Alley and uh, I might have to run for my life and all that. Because I don't, I'm not, I wasn't interested in getting involved. I wasn't a hooligan or a thug, but it was kind of there and it was part of the adrenaline, part of the excitement. Now I'm 60. I don't, I don't want to have anything to do with any of that. Although I expect that there will be some issues on Saturday, whether people throw bricks at the coach or whether some lads try to get down into the town centre to have a scrap and don't even have tickets for the game. You just don't know. But that is part of human nature. It's part of the way young men behave. And it's not just about football. It happens in every town centre, every Friday and Saturday night. It's just something that young men, some stupid young men, and I'm not condoning it in any way, 
like to do. But now, John, you're a bit older than you were when you, were, when you felt that rivalry. And so the rivalry sort of morphs into something different. Sometimes it just sort of goes away and you go, actually, I, don't like, I, like, I dislike Bournemouth more than I like Luton because we've had <laughs> yeah. all this history with them. But for me, this is the key game. It's the key game. It's the only game. So if you ask most Tottenham fans, would they prefer to get top four or do the double over Arsenal and beat them 7-0? They'll probably take the latter, although football fans are very pragmatic these days and go, well, Champions League means a lot more money. We might get better. <laughs> but actually, what they're saying, and if you go and talk to Liverpool fans and ask them what the highlight of their season is, because they're not going to win anything this season, and they're probably not going to get in the top four. So in a way, it's a bit skewed. But if you ask them what the highlight of their last couple of years is, yes, winning the Premier League, but thrashing Man United 7-0 at Anfield will certainly be in the the top three highest moments of their last two or three seasons and that's what rivalry means to fans to whom the rivalry means something for others it doesn't it doesn't matter I even heard a Tottenham fan on the radio saying he'd prefer if we beat Chelsea than Arsenal and everyone on the radio said what so for me the 23rd of October and it's weird and it does slightly prove that the rivalry doesn't quite exist at the level that it did and I know this because I follow lots and lots of people on social media and lots of Watford groups we beat Luton. We humiliated them. We sent them back up the road with their tails between their legs. We thrashed them. We hammered them. They never got a kick. They barely had a shot on target. And that was an amazing experience. And as Mike said, the atmosphere in the ground was unbelievable. That is the standout highlight of what has been a fairly mediocre season. But if you go online, people don't, even the kids, they don't, they, they remember it on the day or, the, or a few, but they don't call it the highlight of the season. For me, it was the best performance and it was the absolute highlight, only to be bettered when we repeat it on Saturday <laughs> in their own house. Now, I say all that and I said earlier that I was feeling a bit nervous. Now, football is full of karma. Right? We all know it. A player that used to play for you goes off to some other team. They come back to your, your place to play. What do they do? They score. Everyone knows it. It's like everyone gets their, their, their app out and puts 50p on their former player scoring against you because it happens time and time and time again. So this, as far as I'm aware, although someone might tell me I'm wrong, this is the first time that a previous manager or a recently previous manager who was kicked out of the club after nine games for lots of reasons that I agree with, but in other ways you might look at it and go, mm, yeah, that wasn't. He is going to bring, he is going to be there. He's going to bring that intensity to those Luton players. I think we took them by surprise on October the 23rd. We got out on the pitch. We hassled and harried. We scored early. I think they weren't ready for us. Let me tell you, John and Mike, they will be ready on Saturday. They will want revenge. They've got one of our ex-managers, who populate the whole of European football, as far as I can tell now. Oh, he's a Watford ex-manager. Oh, he's a Watford ex-manager. Someone said there's 25% of Premier League managers have managed Watford. It's insane. But this is a recent one. And there he is, a young manager trying to cut his teeth. And he is managing that lot up the road. And when we turn up, it's going to be hostile. It's going to be febrile. And, uh, and I think our players, I hope our players, understand what they're facing. This will be... I mean, I don't know what some of those uh, foreign lads have done in their past playing in derbies in Brazil or wherever. But I believe that for this young team, uh, for the young players in our squad who are you know, our best players, even players like Porteous and Hoot, they won't have experienced something in that tight little ground. There's nothing like it, Carl, is there? No, it will be intense like for them. And I hope they step up because they, Luton could do to us quite easily what we did to them just by being more on it, getting out of the traps, being intense, scoring early, and then we sort of, we've seen, we've seen, we did it against Millwall. We were 3-0 down at half-time. That can happen. 
with this team. And that's what that's why I'm nervous. I'm also really excited. I haven't been there for years. Uh, as we know, we haven't played them, you know, as you uh, rightfully explained. But the thing about rivalries is that they need a spark, possibly. And maybe your your little pilot light, John, is just a little bit low. And if maybe you'd been there on October 23rd, it would have just got tweaked up a little bit. And you think, oh, am I going to go to the kennel? You go, no. The other thing about this one is we, we said after um, Wigan that the season's over. If we lose this one, it really is over. Not only would it be over, but it would pretty much cement Luton in the, in the playoffs as well. So there is that. And I think potentially that's why there's those massive nerves about it. Oh, no, we're going to be the ones that sort of <laughs> pave the way for them to get into the playoffs. And then we're going to spend the close season sitting there, fingers crossed that they, they don't get to the player final or they do get to the player final and lose because that would be even more heartbreaking um, and I think you're <laughs> right I mean I think to experience Kenilworth Road on, on Derby Day is is something that I think everyone ought to do um, because it is just that it's it's everything distilled down into just everything you want your team to do so much and it's not only you want your team to win so badly, you want the other team to fail just as badly. And that kind of intensif- intensifies everything. And I, I do wonder, I think the players will understand it because they've all, they've all been around football. They know what a derby is. Some of them have been in South America and Scotland, so on and so forth. They'll all have played in derby games and grudge matches. My question is, Cole, like you say, will they have any idea what it's going to be like in that ridiculous little ground <laughs> with 9,000 ridiculous people screaming at them from what will feel like inches away. Because that's what it feels like when you're in there. There won't be a spare seat to be had in the place. Um, they will have been, pl- from the minute the final whistle went, back in October at Vicarage Road, they'd have been looking forward to this. That will have been intensifying with each passing day, each passing week, as they see the wheels fall off at Watford. Another manager... Um, bite the dust Watford slip further and further away from from player of contention while they cement themselves they will be thinking this is our time after all those years of being of Watford fans lauding it above us when they were out of the league when they were scrabbling to get up out of the conference into league two and league two we'll never play you again we we used to sort of uh, sing at them and this it will mean an enormous amount to them and quite right too because that is because Without this sort of thing, as Colin sort of alluded to it earlier, we're the ones that pay for it. We're the ones that choose to go. And without this sort of thing, there isn't really anything. It's, it's stuff like this that gives the whole balmy nature of being a football fan some context, some parameters, some, some meaning. And, and yes, they're con- constructs that we sort of develop and attach meaning to ourselves, but you can't deny it's there. Um, but we talk a lot about moments. And I guess Derby Day is an elongated moment. It's the week leading up to it. It's the morning of the match when you wake up with those excited butterflies. I bet everyone will be bouncing out of bed an hour early, into the shower, whistling Z cars or whatever as as they go. It will be as one Watford supporters doing exactly the same thing with that little bit more intensity, that little bit more excitement. Um, And our our counterparts up the road will be doing exactly the same thing. And, And quite frankly... That's what it's all about. There isn't anything else apart from those that little frisson, that little bit of excitement that 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 football football gives you. We may win, we may lose. Who knows? But it'll be a belter of a day, whatever happens. I remember my first trip, one of two trips to the kennel. Uh, I went on when when there weren't away fans. So we remember the point, remember there was a point where Luton had their bouncy fake pitch, but they didn't have any away fans. 
and I went with Anne Swanson and the Junior Hornets, and we were there, the only Watford fans. But the thing was, we lost 2-1, and they scored the, our goal. That's how bad we were. But also, that was the last game of the season when we got relegated on that Dave Bassett slash Steve Harrison season. So we were there, I remember singing, we're going down, we're going down, you're not, you're not. All these like 10, 11, 13-year-olds with Anne Swanson. She might have told us to be quiet a few times, but you know, <clears throat> that's what it's like. Um, so this this game is the first of our, our run-in. Mike, is there anything in you that may have grown since last time we, we discussed Watford Football Club that is not looking forward to, but thinking there is still really something to play for or not necessarily to be worth playing for because we discussed, hey, six out of eight, we might make it into the playoff. Six out of eight, that gets us in contention and it gets us in a great place um, to be on a, a, an up momentum. But none of us felt like, we, we talked it, we said it, but none of us felt like that's, that's going to happen. And I thought maybe it will appear in my mind, in my heart over this little break, but it really hasn't. No. And, it, and it's not going to, I don't think. I don't think so. And, and to, to kind of carry on from our previous conversation, I know we're sort of trying to move on from it. This is all that matters to me now, this game at the moment. I haven't thought about it in any other context, really, than it's Derby Day. And I know I said there that we, we lose and our season's really over. But for me, I feel like we've, we've slipped up too many times to really have any right to, to, to look at towards the end of the season with any, any real hope. So this really is, I've just been so excited about this game I haven't thought of the of the wider context, but you know that that said, if they do somehow get get a result, the games then we've got a Huddersfield, Coventry, Bristol City, Cardiff, Hull, Sunderland, and Stoke. Now, on any given day, you'd expect you, if you stuck a quid on Watford to win any of those games, you would have half a chance of getting something back, really. But can Watford haven't won two games back to back all season? I don't think. So what what are the what are the chances of, of of us doing it six times? I I would say pretty pretty minimal. The the only the only real vague mitigating circumstance would be is if this group of players who have struggled to gel all season have struggled to show really the heart and, and desire necessary to uh, to be competitive in the championship. Uh, they've failed to show the understanding of how to get the best out of each other all season. If they are somehow at 12.30 on Saturday able to find that in themselves and each other and put on a performance, go there and dare we dream, get a result, then there's no finer way to kickstart a, a, a mini run-in than, than doing that. And there's no finer way to get some belief that if you can go there, look at that lot in the eye and come out with a... Um, come out with a win, then they, there's no reason they shouldn't do it against Huddersfield, Coventry, Bristol City, Cardiff, Hull, Sunderland and Stoke City. If they can beat Luton, they can sure as heck beat all the others. But the big question is, you know, take the Derby aspect out of it for a minute. Luton are above us in the table for a reason. They've been consistently better than us. Their results are consistently better than us. So your question, I'm really excited about Saturday because it's a chance to... to test ourselves against Luton again and they, they've, they haven't come round very often so we're entitled to enjoy these in, in isolation and to get excited about them in, in isolation does it mean and, and I guess we'll, we'll ask the question again after the game but I, I don't really think that anything's changed like you say John you wonder whether we mellow a little bit we've had a couple of we've had a week off watching England enjoying the various internationals 
uh, perhaps watching other sports, have 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 our thoughts towards Watford sort of soften to a little bit. Do we cut them a bit of slack? Have we got a little bit of hope back? And I'd say, and honestly, I haven't, because the the proof in that particular pudding, we've been eating it all season. Is, is there any chance that it's going to change suddenly? If there's anything going to change it suddenly, it would be Saturday. And I just hope, really, now that we're looking, we're looking towards establishing who's going to be here for next season uh, and them turning in decent performances and showing us as supporters and perhaps the owners, the ownership, what we're going to have to build around for, for next season. Once Saturday's done and dusted, I'm pretty sure I'm going to be looking ahead to the summer and what will hopefully be a successful rebuild. I just want to respond to what Mike's just said. And actually, you know, as, as Watford fans in the past uh, few years, because we've either been up the top half of the championship or in the bottom half of um, the Premier League, so much of what we've talked about, not just on this podcast, but with each other as fans and so on, has been, are we going to get relegated? If we get these two points or we get a point against here, we might put ourselves in a better position. If we can get another win back to back, if we get these wins, we'll get in the playoffs. Maybe we might even go for automatic promotion. We talk about promotion and relegation. What Saturday means to me, it doesn't have any of that context at all. What it means to me is about being purely a Watford fan, going to Kenilworth Road to play your fiercest and ugliest and, uh, <laughs> and most awful rivals. And that, for me, is a pure Watford fan experience. It has nothing to do with promotion. It has nothing to do with relegation. And that, for me, is why it stands out. Because it stops me thinking in the way that you just described. Well, if we win six out of this, if we get a game, if we do this well on, you know, we play them and then if they lose and we get, we might sneak into the playoffs. I don't care. I don't care. I just want to be a Watford fan, pure and simple. In my DNA, I want to stand on a terrace and cheer for my club and throw abuse at the, at the opposition <laughs> club and the opposition players because that for me is a pure Watford experience and that's why I'm really looking forward to it. We asked your questions on Twitter um, ahead of this. Just want to make your, your, your questions what we, sh- we should be discussing. A lot of what you said there, Mike, about you looking forward. Mike Smart did, did ask a few questions. Mike, we're going to leave them for now. I think we're going to at least leave them until after the looting game about who stays, are they good enough, do we give a new contract here, a new contract there. But, but Colin, for you, the one question you did ask, Wilders Watford... Is it any different so far? Do you think, you know, we did see we did see some differences, of course. You know, people I speak to, especially the dads who are part of Eli's Sunday League team, you know, they seem to be more positive and it was better. But anything really could be better. Do you think he will have had a chance to put a new mindset on them? Because what we've seen for most of the season is we do well against the more established teams, the more Premier League type teams, but we play the boys at the bottom who've got a bit of dirtiness about them, a little bit of time wasting about them, a little bit of that. We don't have it against them. Do you think he could make a difference in that sense, in the time he's had with these players, Cole? I think he's made a difference, yeah. I think it got very stale under Bilic and I think everyone got rather dispirited. No, that, that can happen. There's a lot of people involved in running a, a football team and getting it onto a pitch and getting it to win games. And it started not to really function. Now, I'm not sure that you can entirely blame Bilic for that because I think the club is, is like working well, trying to play, trying to train a football team and play football on a quicksand because everyone's thinking, well, you know, don't win this game. Where am I going to be next week? And I don't think that's good for anybody. So I don't think it's entirely Billich's fault. I think there's so much pressure on a Watford manager to produce uh, as soon as they arrive. And we've had some that have done that. 
Kike Sanchez Flores, Javi Grazia. They 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 hit the ground running. Nil nil at Stoke, four one at home against Chelsea. But but with with the squad that we've got, and how as you rightly point out, creatively they find it so hard to break down teams that just sit behind the ball, be it Preston or Wigan or whoever it is. Those two recent home games were just awful because we just seem to not have any ideas or any plan how to score. I think what Wilder needs to do, and he, good Lord, he's got nothing to lose, although perhaps you could argue it's an important job for him because it could be a relaunch if he did manage to sneak us into sixth spot. But I think he hasn't really got anything to lose. So take off the handbrake, play three up front, get them properly supported and just say, go on, go on, lads, you're footballers. You're not here, you're not chess men. It's not about, all knocking it between Hoot and Porteous and oh, out to um, the left back and then back in and holding the ball. I mean, we're brilliant with possession in our own half. Absolutely brilliant at it. But when we get in the other half, we come up against a lot of other players, obviously the opposition sitting deep against us because we have got threats like Pedro, like Saar um, and Davis as well on his day. And so you think, how can we unleash this group just to put a smile on their face? Just go on. And we did it against Birmingham, but it seems the only way Watford can do it is if we score early. And if we don't score early, it's we slowly start to kind of slow down unravel, lose energy, lose belief, probably crucially. And, you know, it, it's difficult for someone like Wilder to come in and really change that culture because we've had that culture for so long. But just, I just describe my has... average day there, Cole. Start off all right and then <laughs> gradually just get slowly... Yeah, it goes, goes back to my point about following a football club is not a hobby because there's just way too much pain. In our, if you do a hobby, it's for joy, right? You go, oh, I'm going to go make a pot this evening at my pottery class. And uh, there's no pain. There's no pain there, I guess, if it collapses and stuff. But Or, you know, going for a nice bike ride on the Yorkshire Dales. But following a football club is way too much pain for it to be a hobby. So I just think, I think Chris Wilder could do it. Are we going to keep him? You know, if we don't go up, are we going to keep him? Are we going to look elsewhere? I mean, that's the problem for me is that I don't know. And that's not a good place. And someone said to me recently, that was really, really interesting to me, and because I hadn't really thought about it like that. Us as fans, who, who really is, is an emblem of the club for us? It's Graham Taylor. Graham Taylor is the father of the club, if you like, in the modern era. And we all made a massive connection with him, with the players as well, of course, but mostly our kind of identity symbiosis if you like with the club was, was was through graham because he stood for something he stood for the town he stood for the club he you know he he said all those wonderful things that he said which i won't repeat now we don't have that we're starved of that we're starved of a relationship with a coach I'm, i've got a friend who's a massive arsenal fan and he's like i know it was really difficult with arteta and people wanted him out but now the whole club has this identity around this one man who takes no nonsense, who gets young players in, gets rid of the players who are causing trouble and forges an identity, not just for the players or the club as a kind of nebulous thing in the mid in midair, but actually for the people that pay money to go and watch them. And we've been starved of that. We've had so many managers. You know, I felt quite connected to Javi Grazia, but four games lost at the beginning of a season, it's gone. Didn't have to go. You know, he didn't have to go, did he? But they, the pressure on staying in the Premier League or getting promoted amongst owners and then the pressure that's then exerted down onto coaches forces a situation and God knows we're not the only one. There are clubs all over the place that sat their managers. You know, Patrick Vieira, they're sitting in 12th. They're not getting relegated. He's gone. Gone. I know they, had, they were having a terrible run of form. He's gone. You've got to start all over again. And the fans who built up a connection with a coach, coach's gone. 
and then you've got to start all over again. Here you go, John. You asked the question. That was quite an answer from Cole. So what I thought, <laughs> what I thought was yeah. a fairly sim- simple question. Has Chris Wilder improved Watford? Drawn one, lost one, won one. Same, same. Yeah. There you go. No, he hasn't yet. My point is, if we can hold on to someone like him, he's clearly got a good track record and create something, and he can create something for us, and we can give that back to him, and the players can buy into it. Then you've got a chance. But if you just keep chucking him away every time you lose three or four, you know, out of six or seven, because you're not going to get the thing you're after, then next season you're just going to repeat and repeat and repeat because you're searching for some sort of holy grail. And what Watford fans have have really lost touch with is who we really are as a club. You know, in our in our history, I don't know how many seasons it is, but it's like 13 seasons out of 150 years nearly in the top flight. Most of the time, in the recent time, or since Taylor left the first time, we have been a championship club. And for quite a lot of that time, we have struggled in that league. Now we feel like we have some sort of right to be fighting up there, getting uh, getting promoted, staying in the Premier League, you know, looking to try and get to another cup final. Those things are all very valid ambitions, but you also have to be real. And the way for a club like Watford, who, let's face it, has been punching above its weight for nearly a decade now. We have really been punching above our weight. Five seasons in the Premier League, a relegation, then a promotion, then another relegation. In the past, like in the 90s, you know, we were 14th, 15th. We had no, you know, we were we were really just scrabbling along the bottom, trying not to get relegated. We did get relegated to League One for two seasons. Taylor came back and transformed us back into the club that we had become under him the first time around. So we, we have to see it as we have to see ourselves as a club that is punching above its weight. And if you want to punch above your weight, there are certain things I believe that you have to have. You have to have some stability in the in the coach in the coaching department, and you have to have some stability in the playing staff. We chuck players out and get loads of new players in every single window. We never get a chance to really, you know, like Kamara, for instance, he turns up, he looks quite good. Now we, now he's going to go. What was that about? He's only been here 18 months. It's, it, that is the problem. It's not our problem. It's a football problem. It's the EFL problem, and it's a Premier League problem. I, one thing I always say about Colin is, I, I think I always go back to the what has been the last few years and what has been before that. And and we'll talk about it in a minute about, you know, we're all going to get to, some fans are going to get to meet up with Gino and ask him some questions soon-ish. Yeah, the big thing for me, it comes down to, I don't mind the managerial changes if the system and the playing style is the same. You yes. look what happened with Brighton. Yes, they're a much more established, higher calibre player in the Premier League, but they haven't lost a beat between Potter going and the new boy coming in. That's what is needed. And then you don't, it doesn't matter if you change the manager, but you do have a way of being Watford. And that's what we haven't had yeah. for an awful long time. An awful long time. Um, I think if we could have that, then players would become more prominent to us and they wouldn't just be bought haphazardly, or that's what it feels like at least. And then those connections would would be would be deeper, like you, you've talked about. And of course, you know, you know, run in now. These six games, we've had a great run in now. That would get a, a connection with it. We just haven't had great wins. We haven't had an amazing time of late. And truly, mm. that's the only time you really connect with a player when you have those moments of them scoring goals and you cheering at the same time as them. That's where you connect with players. It's not through losing games. And unfortunately, we've lost too many games to, to build up connections. One thing about a bunch of players we were connected, a uh, question came in uh, from Steve Baldwin. If there was one player from the GT era you could pick up and place in this side, who would it be and why? 
Mike, you can't say Tony Coton. <laughs> <laughs> who, 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 what player do you think, Colin? John Barnes. Oh, I like the. I like um. Actually, who was it? Uh, we had a one reply uh, from uh, our mate David Muggins. He said Tony Coton purely because he's superb. But with social media so prevalent to, prevalent today, Mo Johnson would be a joy to follow on Instagram. <laughs> the, the reason why I, th- I would say Tony Coton, I think. Do you know who I'd love to see? I would choose Tony Coton. I'd love to see Nigel Callahan. Yeah, um, because I think he probably remains underrated by by Watford supporters potentially because of, of what John Barnes did at the, at the football club and he was just, he was just such a ludicrously good player Barnes it's every time i look back and and see the clips of him some of the, his his dribbling his his passing his his goals it was he was just otherworldly really and the fact that he played in the, in the yellow of Watford still is is pretty extraordinary but but Callahan was amazing down that wing as well. Some of the deliveries he would he would put in, skipping down that that flank, putting balls in, he could hit a, a mean shot as well. So I'd love to see Callahan in the modern day era. But the reason I say Tony Coton is because, and it's kind of links into what what you both were discussing there, and and, and Colin was alluding to in terms of what Watford stands for and and what it's all about. I think one of the things that we are definitely missing is a leader. We've spoken about it before. Um, I don't think there's anyone really who probably keeps the players in line on the pitch like like perhaps Troy might have done before. And and Tony Coton was that larger-than-life character. You know he's not going to settle for second best uh, from his teammates. You know he's not going to throw it in regardless of, of whether he's in a reserve match at home against Charlton under-21s or away at Luton. You are going to get a Tony Coton performance every time. And I think we don't we don't see enough of that. So if I could transport anyone um from the gt era it would it would be him for 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 that reason and it would just be amazing to see him in action again i reckon he could still do a job as well he probably <laughs> could just by glaring at people i reckon just by glaring colin um this one's from vic bay uh, who's getting the inevitable inevitable red card on saturday his money is on hood i'm i'm gonna go against that because remember that all that hassle he was getting at burnley he didn't rise mm. to it. And I said that the day, actually, even all the, the tomfoolery that we've been getting and time wasting, what for players don't seem to be rising to it too I much. I wish they would a bit more. Well, <laughs> you say that, but I think on Saturday it could be a red card. And we know that, of course, Luton had a player sent off back in October, mainly because we were absolutely thrashing them and making them look like fools. And that might have wound them up a little bit more. Maybe see, that would got, be We've thing. got him going, Mike. Did you hear that? Did you hear that little <laughs> edge in his tone there? Yeah, we smashed them, made them look like fools. That's more like it, Johnny. Who's, who's likely to get sent off? Or more, more likely. Hamza Chowdhury, without a shadow. Oh, okay. I went Jao Pedro. Yeah, I'm with you, John. He'll get his first yellow card from just trying to wind them up and his second one when he gets wound up. And uh, I think that's, that's, that's him off. I, I'm going straight red with Hamza. Ball okay. comes past him. He slightly missed it. He's turned. He's chased after him. And he's just gone kaboom like that. And he's like, got up and walked straight off. And everyone, we all we all cheer, even though we're 3-0 down by that stage. It doesn't really matter. I reckon Jao is, he is one that will get it. He is one that will understand what he's going yeah. into, and he is one yeah. that will he will wear the weight of the fans on his shoulders. He he just gets it. You can tell when he goes out there. Yes, his performances of in the last game perhaps haven't been up there, but he, you can you know that he gets it. You know that he is playing for the fans, and and, and I, I think he will be he'll be psyched and and ready for this one. I think I, I think Hamza is a great shout as well. I reckon Imran Luz has got it in his locker as well. I reckon he could have oh, a little little kick it out. Could be eight men. And and the other one, you know, who will be licking his lips about this uh, about this match will be um, 
will be Ryan Porteous. I think he will be he'll be bang up for it as well. And um, he is not um, he's not backward in coming forward. That lad. And it, again, it goes back to uh, Colin. You a little bit tongue in cheek, saying sort of, I wish some of them, some more of them, did have that evident fire in their belly. And I, I absolutely agree, Luton or otherwise. I think there's been a lack of gumption, a lack of that sort of just that little. That little come on, we're going to grab it by the short and curlies and and take this and 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 Porteous has shown that ever since he he came in and I think it's derby days for players like for for emotional players are a are a tightrope um, and uh, yeah I think there'll be quite a few walking that uh, walking that 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 tightrope uh, and Ryan Porteous uh, will be coming back with a big smile on his face because they're two 0 up against yeah. Spain at I don't think he's played that many games for Scotland so to get into that first team at the age that he is to to play in a winning side against what you were quite recently the European and World Champions I suspect he'll be coming back with a, a little bit of a spring in his step John. he certainly will by the way Colin I've, I've gone to look at the Watford archive uh, and your point about uh, us going back with to Luton with uh, Rob Edwards, the former Watford manager, the only other one I could find. Uh, and of course, it did come to mind, but I did check it on the Watford archive. And th- thanks to Ollie and Hornet Heaven, oh, is yes. Neil McBain. Neil McBain. Well, McBain. Yeah, with, a, with a glass of whiskey in his hand at all times. <laughs> isn't, wasn't he Apparently. the... Um, isn't McBain out of um, The Simpsons? Simpsons, yeah. Different, different fella. Um, this was a, he was a Watford manager, then he was Luton manager, then he was Watford manager again. What do you mean different fella, John? So you're telling me that the guy who managed <laughs> Watford and Luton wasn't actually a Simpsons character. Thanks for pointing that out. Cheers. <laughs> <laughs> Just to make sure it's clear, he's not a cartoon character. He was a proper human being. Um, Talk about proper human beings, because he's not a cartoon character, but he's a YouTube star. Um, Two for Watford players getting new contracts this week, Michael. Firstly, Mariapa off to Salford. uh, And uh, Ben Foster back in goal with Wrexham, with his brand new mate, Mr Ryan Reynolds. And uh, Rob McElhenney as well, who, as a massive fan of Always Sunny in Philadelphia, I always feel a bit sorry for Rob when he gets left out. Rob, giving him his first name, (laughs) what am I like? Ben Foster isn't for me. I don't think he's for you, Cole. I don't think he's for you, John. That's not, we're not alike in terms of uh, who we are as people. We're not alike in terms of the, the content I like to consume. So, I'm, you know, Ben Foster isn't for me. However, look, look at what the guy is doing. He's playing football. He's probably going to get promoted, um, be part of a really sort of interesting story with the, the eyes of the world upon him. He loves making videos and content. You can, and, he, and it doesn't matter if you like it or you don't. Mm. He enjoys making it. So he's doing playing football for a living late into his, into his career. He's doing exactly what he wants to do, which is create content. And now he's going to be doing it with Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds with Deadpool. So it's not for us, but if you look at it, his life's not going too badly, is it? No, it's pretty sweet, really. Yeah, he's, so uh, he's having I, fun. I think it's to be, and, and again, I think this will be contentious. I just think it's a little bit of jealousy. If you don't like his YouTube mm. videos, don't watch him. If well, you I... don't think he's a good enough keeper anymore, it doesn't matter. You don't support Wrexham. If you're upset about him being mates with Rob <laughs> McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds, well, fine, because you're not mates with Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds. He is. I mean, I just, just, let it, the bloke's living the dream. 
his dream. So so let him get on with it. I did watch his uh, his video from this weekend because he's backed with the with the with a GoPro in the goal, um, and they won three 0 So there wasn't exactly a huge amount to be seen from his uh, GoPro in the goal, um, but you could literally see. You know, he says it. Oh, I'm buzzing, I'm buzzing, and I always think when people over the overuse that word. But he was genuinely excited. But there were several occasions where he didn't stay in the hotel before the game, uh, and also he couldn't get in the car park he wanted to. I'm thinking, well, mate, that's your non-league yeah. football. That's your that's your grassroots after being away from Wrexham for 18 years or whatever. I think what's interesting about him going there is I wonder if they really chose him on the basis of the kind of content that he would create for the club because since Wrexham were bought by two Hollywood actors, yeah. there's you know there's been a documentary that was probably agreed before they bought the club. There's conspiracy theorists out there mm. who love to say this stuff, but you know it's like this is a project. We get these guys want to buy a football club. We'd like to do a documentary. Let's sit down and talk about that. They go, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. Let's buy the football club. We go into the community, and there is no doubt that those two men have done a lot already in that community to bring those people together. Then you think, well, we need a player that might provide us with like a whole new audience though here's a goalkeeper he's 39 he can still he can still be a good goalkeeper so why not I mean I haven't got anything against Ben Foster I think he was a very very fine goalkeeper for us uh, over many seasons uh, on his num- a number of different spells with us and, and I, I, I didn't much go for the I wondered if it was distracting having uh, all this extra stuff that he was doing but you know it uh, yeah I'm with Mike I mean good luck to you mate you know, good luck to you. And I hope you get promoted. And I hope, you know, I feel quite warm and fuzzy about Wrexham, weirdly, because I've never felt like that before. Yeah, Maps, of course, are going to Salford, Mike, who are currently uh, in the playoffs uh, in League Two uh, on their rise from, from nothingness to, to something with all the Manchester United old boys. That's got to be good for him. And I suppose you always think with him getting involved, that's a, that's a wise choice, do you think? Yeah, and I think there is much warmer sentiment towards towards Adrian Mariapa because I think the way he conducted and and this you, you can level this at Ben Foster you can say that the, the the content and the video stuff was that playing on his mind because he was doing it while he was a Watford footballer and Watford weren't doing particularly particularly well while he was doing it so that is an absolutely fine thing to to, to level at him and 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 to, to question Ben Foster you cannot uh, he's a completely different um, character Adrian Mariapa much more much more private and much more serious person in terms of his career you'd have said and it's I'm absolutely delighted that he's he's back in the game it was um a crying shame the way he he left Watford a crying shame that he never got the um the send-off that that he deserved and the, the issues around it and then I think probably Covid and other circumstances have meant that that hasn't really been able to be to be remedied which is which is a real shame but what what I think professional footballers really want to do is carry on playing professional football and for someone who was demonstrably a a really good professional we've heard um in speaking to to Troy haven't we that when when Troy needed help AD was there um so he's obviously a a good human being so for him to be extending his his footballing career at a team playing for something at the right end of a of a league table uh, is is absolutely tremendous. And uh, Cole, you say you've got warm and fuzzy feelings for for Wrexham. Well, I absolutely have real proper fuzzy feelings for for Mariapa. He's for me, he's a uh, he's a he's a he's a Watford ledge, isn't he? And to see him carrying on doing what he loves doing is is brilliant. So yeah, good good luck to him, and uh, let's uh, let's hope he gets some games under his belt and uh, enjoys the rest of the season.
Yeah, and give it a season or two, John, and we, we might be playing them. <laughs> who knows both of them maybe uh just looked at by the way um the number of views don't say that john oh <laughs> <laughs> no rex on the both of them on a rise they're coming to well, us we're not, we're not like going down to them yeah, um we did say the thing about uh about ben um has he said he's had over a million views uh of his uh vlog from the weekend uh which go. is was up significantly uh from uh from the previous few so yeah it's a it's gotta be good for him and good for his uh his cycling GK thing that he's huge doing. swathes of America now support Wrexham, knowing not a clue where it is. Not a clue. One of the things that did happen over the the break uh, apparently was Jab Pedro Colin went and had a visit to Milan. I know. And I don't know about you. Of course, we had the discussion on the WhatsApp group. Would that be your prefer- preferential sort of direction for him to go, uh, rather than going up to the Premier League to go off to to Milan, where we can probably go and have a weekend away, maybe, and go and see him play? Would we do that? I'd, I'd like, like to. Yeah, exactly. Go to Milan. It feels like a great place for him to go. Just you know, as you know, not within another English club or someone. Yeah, yeah. I mean, know? yeah. And also, he's not English, and so you know, I'm looking. If you compare it, say, to the Jude Bellingham uh, situation, and they're roughly the same age. I think actually, Jao's a bit older than Jude Bellingham, believe it or not, because the bloke looks 28 and he's only 19. Uh, and he's probably going to be the best player that's ever played for England, uh, given a, a lack of injuries and, and enough development. But he is an absolutely brilliant player. And they're saying, oh, is he going to go to Man City? Liverpool want him. Oh, Arsenal would quite like him. Every, everyone, Man United, everyone. And I, my feeling about him is just stay away from the Premier League. Just stay away from it. You're happy at Dortmund. Go to Madrid. Go to somewhere in Italy. Or go to, you know, just stay away from it. Because for young English talent, and we've seen it over and over again, uh, players like Rooney, Gascoigne, you know, who eventually did go to Italy. But when, when you get a, a star, it's very hard. There's so much pressure is put on them. Although currently we have so many good players who are English that perhaps that's less true. But for, for Jao, he doesn't have a connection to these islands. Um, I'm sure he's very grateful to Watford for bringing him and starting his career. I would have thought a Spanish-speaking club is probably more likely. But Milan, I mean, you can't argue with AC Milan, can you? So, yeah, I don't think that he went on holiday I don't think we should take too much from that, John. But, you know, he did go to Milan. He might have gone to Barcelona for holiday or, you know. But, yeah, we'll see what happens. But I, I suspect his, his time is coming to an end with us, probably. From, Watford, from Watford's point of view, I think it's important that he gets an eye-catching and interesting move and then goes on to be successful. And for me, going to AC Milan would, would be absolutely that. Obviously, treading in the footsteps of, of Luther, who, who went over and had, and had, a, had a trickier time. But... AC Milan is still thought of, you know, perhaps rather romantically as as one of the absolute gargantuan sides in, in Europe, isn't it? And I keep saying every year you need to get over to Milan to do the San Siro before it finally gets knocked down. And I can't think of any better reason than to go and watch João Pedro in the famous red and black stripes. But but from a serious point and a, and a selfish point of view, what a good eye-catching and successful move for João Pedro does it does restore a little bit of faith in Watford in terms of these players that we're looking to to perhaps bring in, tempt them to Watford where the, the project is looking a little bit like it's stalled. It's not, we can't really promise Premier League football on the horizon at the moment, but what we can promise you is we'll get you over here, we'll get you game time, and then you're going to get this move to whether it's AC Milan, whether it's Dortmund, whether it's Spain, whether it's the, the, the upper echelons of the, of the Premier League. I think for us... For Watford, and probably more accurately, Gino and his his team, it's important that these players go on and really, really do succeed because 
uh, you know, Richarlison's gone for two big money moves. He's, he's struggling a little bit at, at, at Tottenham now. But when was the when we have done good deals? You know, Stupinian at, um, at Brighton went for for big money and so on and so forth. So there are big money ex Watford players out there, but we could yeah. do with them being we could do with a couple of really chunky case studies to help to help us get back on the on the on that trajectory that Warren is doing. You know, and on a personal point of view, I don't know Zhao Pedro, obviously, but I'm. I think what he has did done for Watford has been pretty impressive. Really, he's hung around um, for seasoning. Well, not not as long as Ismail Assar, for example. And I say hung around. He's obviously been paid handsomely, and he's getting to play football for a living. But he's never. You've never felt like he's wanted out. You he you no. feel like that he is one that plays for the badge. He is one that plays for us when when he goes out there. So. With that in mind, I wish him nothing but success wherever he goes. I'm desperate for him to go on and have the career that I think he will. And I think for, for Watford, it, it, it just needs to, to work out as well. Uh, one question, Michael, that's been on the, the lips of many Watford fans um, <clears throat> since uh, the last set of uh, chairman notes uh, in the programme was um, this thing that Watford fans are going to meet Scott and Gino. And Hazel Roberts, um, she sent us a, a, a tweet and she said, how are we working out which fans meet with Scott and Gino? And, well, there's, there's nothing to be announced quite yet, but there's a lot of work being going on, hasn't there, Mike, with a with a gang of people who are just like us, uh, who, who want to do something, not to, to control it, not to take it over, but to, to make sure things are done right. Well, it's a good question, Hazel, because your question was the same as absolutely everybody else mm. uh, when they when they read those program notes. Because there was no there was no plan in place, so we sort of asked around people that we know. No one has been um, spoken to or contacted in terms of uh, next steps. So what we said when those program notes came out, uh, out was that it's a sort of open invitation to Watford supporters to to get together, and that is literally what it was. It, it was. Not a, well, it's a challenge, in effect, to say, here you go, sort yourselves out. So, as you've mentioned there, John, we've sort of um, taken it upon ourselves to talk to other um, other people who are in a situation like us with podcasts or, or uh, are engaged and have groups. So whether that's podcasts, whether it's fanzines, whether it's regional groups, um, whether it's the trust, trying to band together as best we can, with the long-term view of making sure that a, a, a fair way of involving as many Watford supporters from as many different backgrounds uh, and situations are able to, to get in, in, in touch with the, with the club and take a part in these meetings. Because I think the important thing to recognise here is that this it being a, a meeting with Gino will, will attract the headlines that, and for, for obvious reasons. But what this is, is meeting one or event number one in a series of ongoing or what should be if it's done correctly series of meetings between Watford supporters and the club and what needs to be done and it's down to Watford supporters evidently to organize how that how that happens we are speaking not to the club we're speaking to 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 fellow fans to try and come up with a way of making sure that it's as um, successful as possible because it's 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 not about me being in the room it's not about you being in the room it's about making sure that for the next year two years three years ten years we don't have to go through this again there is a mechanism there is a situation there is a 
um, a, a system in place that means there are regular con- there is regular contact between a wide representation of Watford supporters and the club, and that's it's fallen to Watford supporters to do it. I feel like we're in a position whereby we can play a part in that. Um, so that's what we're that's what we're trying to trying to do. And and this is not just us speaking within ourselves. This is us speaking to outside organisations for input, for support, for just to find out the best way to do these things. And like you say, the Geno thing will be be one thing, but it is always going to be the first step in hopefully uh, better better uh, connections with the, with the club. Um, and uh, yeah, a, a much more open dialogue uh, for for everyone, uh, and that's the biggest thing uh, is that everybody can have an input into this. Even if you're not there, you can have an input into it because there will always be a finite number of people. Is there a possibility of being broadcast? Probably not. It would very much change the tone of the of it. But will there be recordings? Will there be things that can be shared from the evening? We hope so. Yeah, I mean that's the whole point of it, John. Is 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 communication, ongoing communication between the between the supporters and the club. And if if that information isn't able to be disseminated or isn't able to to get out one way or another, then then it's not really not really doing its it, its job. And I think that is, I would take that as read from the club as being being accepted. I don't think you know that that initial committee thing was handled badly, and I think everyone has accepted that. But what what needs to be in situa- in, in place is a situation where fans are represented and they have a voice and a voice that covers as wide a breadth of people as as possible and that voice is being heard by the by the club on a regular basis and and perhaps more importantly the people at the at the higher echelons of the club are held accountable because at the moment that isn't that isn't able to happen. There's no doubt in my mind the commitment that Gino has shown to the club with the renaming of the stands and the building of the stadium and the statue to Graham Taylor. I think he understands, uh, unless he's just, you know, pulling the wool over our eyes, but I don't think he is. I think he understands the club. He understands the culture of the club. He also comes from a, a fairly small town with a small club that his father bought. So he gets all that. What um, the, the, the issue for me partly is that I agree with everything Mike said, but, you know, he's not a politician. He hasn't been elected. He's a private owner of a football club, so it's not a democracy. But I do think that it's possible to create a situation. And one of the issues is that football's very emotional, particularly for the fans, right? We're the most emotional of all the people involved, probably. And and so it's difficult for uh, people at the top end of what is a multi-million pound business to sit down in front of some very emotional people. What they need, they also need something. And this is something that we have to take responsibility for. If we are going to create these events where the board of Watford, the owner, the chief executive and so on, are meeting people who follow the club, there has to be an agreement, a tacit agreement, an unspoken agreement, that though people are emotional, that they are not going to create a situation where the owner says you know what I'm not doing that anymore I'm not going to just come down here and have some bloke yell at me and so that is something that we have to take responsibility for as well and and make sure that it is respectful and human uh, and you know intelligent and well thought through and it will take time to build up the trust and it will take time to get some of our questions answered there aren't always a simple easy answer to a question like well where are you taking the club or what's your vision for the next five years there aren't always straightforward questions and if they 
sound like they're umming and ahhing or they're they feel like you fans feel like maybe they're not telling us what they actually you know we have to be patient with them and they have to learn to trust us and then i think that the dialogue can be very positive for the town for the club for the owner for the players for everyone because there's a sense of unity but um we're a long way from that and it's a very 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 difficult thing to uh, to create and we've seen at other clubs where it's done really well and other clubs where it's not done well and ends up you know sort of being stopped because of people getting too emotional so that that was my plea for it really i just hope people treat it with the respect because they don't have to do it it's not a democracy but they want to they want to and we want them to and so let's try and create something that's positive uh, and will help us you know with our you know help us enlighten us about the way the club is moving and just to put a lid on that just to put a lid on it you're right gino doesn't have to do it and he, he is doing it. There is, there is no God-given right for football supporters to hear from the owner. It, there just simply isn't. So that, that is going hap- to happen, and that's a, a good thing. But I think the point you make there, Colin, and, and John alluded to it earlier, is part of what we're doing as an engaged supporter group is looking at what, what has worked elsewhere. Um, and John mentioned it earlier, so talking to uh, the FSA, for example, and, and, and reaching out to other, other clubs to see what has worked well and, and what hasn't, what are the pitfalls, uh, what could go wrong and, and trying to avoid that. So this is a proper, we're trying to do a proper job of work on, on this without wanting to sound sort of too grand, grandiose about it. We're trying to sort of do something that will benefit both parties um, and, you know, long after from the rookery end ceases to exist, hopefully, it, 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 you know, people are this, the relationship between the, the supporters and the and the club is still... Um, are strong um, but we are definitely taking advice it's not just saying right okay it'd be good if those people were there and those people there it's a it's a much wider scope in terms of what we're trying to do looking what what's worked elsewhere um, and and taking advice so we're taking it incredibly seriously and more of that fairly soon uh, and as soon as we can get it I've got some many other business John am I allowed to have some any of course other you are Cole of course you are so there's two things to my any other business. One is related to Saturday, which will be the last thing I say. The first thing is there's going to be a new Hornet Heaven four-part series. Oh, and now, is... <laughs> is this about what we talked about yes, on the way to game? it is. This is so going to be brilliant. This is about Michael. a scandal. A scandal, scandal! John. <laughs> at the absolute heart of our football club that took place 124 <laughs> years ago with the what is now called the merger of West Hearts, which had been Watford Rovers, and Watford St Mary's. Watford St Mary's playing in the bog with a sewer end in blue and white stripes, and the grandiose uh, West Hearts up there at the West Hearts Club playing in um, uh, in burgundy and gold. And uh, it's a whole story surrounding that merger. Was it a merger, John, or was it a coup d'etat? Well, and the I'm second, the you. second bit. The second bit of any other business, which is related to Saturday, is that uh, if you don't know, uh, in order to go to the ground to watch Watford play at the kennel, you've had to get a coach ticket. And the only way you can get into the ground and to get your hands on an actual match ticket is to go on the coach. So what does that mean? Some people have been a bit grumpy about it, but what it means to me is... I can wear a Watford shirt. I can wear a Watford bobble hat. I can wear a Watford scarf and Watford gloves. And I can stand in that horrible little shed at the end of the kennel, fully regaled in yellow and black, shouting for my team, which has not been the case in many decades past where we had to sort of 
pull up our collars and run like Billio from the station to the ground. So on Saturday, I appeal to anyone who's going to that game to wear your full colours because you're going on a coach. It'll be a police escort. You'll go straight from the coach into the stand. You can wear whatever you want. And I beg you to do so to help the team. Get in there, Colin. So we'll see what happens. Uh, but before we go, we'll, we'll, we'll go. But after this, you're going to hear a little retrospective that we did a few years ago about a certain game at, game at Kenilworth Road where Watford won 4-0. Uh, you may remember it. Uh, Colin does, because you were there, weren't you, Cole? I was. <laughs> uh, and it's, it's basically a load of fans sharing their memories of, of that particular game. It was a great game, but of course other things happened in and around it. And uh, we hear all about that. So that's coming up in a minute. But thank you very much, Michael. You're more than welcome. And thank you, Colin. Thank you very much, John. A pleasure as always. Uh, we'll be back with a podcast after the Luton game, which will include the Brigadier live at Kenilworth Road, <laughs> uh, telling the story of what it was like at the uh, the game against Luton. Thank you very much for listening uh, and do keep listening because this is our documentary or little retrospective uh, about that game in 1997. Watford against Luton. It's a rivalry that's been going on since 1885. There's been, well, there's been a lot of games. We played each other a lot of time. But the first game back in 1885 was just a friendly. They didn't stay that way. This little retrospective is about one game in particular, the 4th of October 1997 where Watford, under Graham Taylor, took a trip to Kenilworth Road. And it had been a long time since Watford had beaten the Hatters. His Watford fan, author and blogger, Matt Rowson. It had been ten years, but ten years in which we played them every season. I mean, we'd not been relegated with them from the top flight, but they, they followed and played them twice a season. Most of them, from memory, were dour, nasty draws which would have been of zero interest to anybody not directly involved. I mean, they were terrible games of football for the most part. There were a couple of exceptions which were still terrible, but for different reasons. We we lost on the first day of the season at Kenilworth Road in the early 90s. And my lingering memory of that is, is of Kerry Dixon and a Luton stamping on Darren Baisley and getting away with it. I remember being outraged. There was also a horrible game at Vicarage Road, which we lost 4-2. The other thing about 10 years is that 10 years was so much longer then than it is now. It's a a function of getting older that time moves in ever so much more quickly, possibly a reflection of, of the football we were playing at the time, which wasn't terrific. So that's what things had been like with Luton for the last 10 years or so. What about at the time of 1997? How are Watford fans feeling about the rivalry? Here's Colin Mace, Colin from from the Ukraine, but also the Hornet Heaven Watford podcast. It was an interesting part of my Watford career. We'd been relegated into what is now League One, the third tier, and we'd had a season with Taylor back at the club as a kind of overseeing figure, but Kenny Jackett was the first team coach, and we had high hopes. In the late 90s, we were both really not doing as well, but the, and it, it kind of intensified the rivalry. Who's going to get better first, if you like? And Watford fan Pete Fincham was certainly ready for this game. You've got nothing but draws and a solitary win in the Anglo-Italian to talk about. By the time you get to your mid-twenties and you're going week in, week out, and it's such an ingrained part of your life, and you're, all your friends who you hang out with are going to the game and you're looking forward to this for months since the fixture list come out in the second Thursday of June or whatever it was, you're looking for Luton at home, you're looking for Luton away, and then you see it 4th of October, and then for weeks, it's only three weeks till Luton, 
three weeks, only two weeks till Luton, as you draw one all at home to York City. And then the following week, you know, is a massive anticlimax. You know, you're losing at home to Millwall, but you're still beating Luton. Because for 10 years, then it was worth the wait. 10 years. It was just something about it that it had to end, and it had to end, I thought, at that point. So Pete's ready for the game, that's for sure. What about Colin? How are Watford doing at that point, very early in the season of 1997-1998? I think we won six out of the first seven and then drew the next two. We were top of the league after nine games. And the next game was against our our fiercest and most hated rivals um, that lot up the road. And then going there, it's like they say about all derbies, you know, the form doesn't really matter. You go along and, and all bets are off, basically. Merriment began early. I think there was a sense of confidence that day that was probably not really justified given our 10 years of hell against them and the fact we'd only drawn one all against York City the previous week. Things have sort of slightly come off the rails after an encouraging start, but for some reason we were weirdly confident. Watford fan Stu Hutchinson was also at the game. I went with three mates, uh, one of whom was more of a Spurs fan, really. We took the supporters coach, which we'd started to do for Luton away, just because being afraid for your personal safety just becomes a bit tiring as you get older. Best advice my dad ever gave me was never drink in a flat roof pub. And the first thing I remember about that day was our coach swinging around the corner onto the Dunstable Road. And just by that Sainsbury's was a flat roof pub and a load of Luton fans at the first sight of our coach they came crashing out of the pub and started throwing their plastic pint glasses in the direction of our reinforced glass windows but not everybody took the club coach Mike Smart for example drove himself to Luton it was my first and so far only visit to the kennel at the time I had a yellow 2CV of which I was very proud and of course as my first car it was suitably bedecked in Watfordness. I'd heard of trouble, obviously, but had never seen a flicker of it any time we played them at home, so I was naive to the potential for bodily harm. Either that, or I was more concerned for the welfare of my 2CV than myself, as I removed all Watfordness from the car, but proudly wore my home shirt. Parked up, got into the ground, such as it is, with no issues. Pete Fincham again. There was just the sort of the usual knucklehead abuse of people running out of pubs and trying to give it the big I am going down the main road but I mean it really didn't it didn't feel on the outside that there was much more than just a, it was just another game against Luton it didn't feel threatening but we didn't hang around granted I mean we still had to walk through someone's back garden to get in into the ground and in the same way as you're almost looking into their bathroom as you're coming out I mean it really is a horrible horrible place Ah, arriving at Kenilworth Road. It's something to be remembered and to be cherished. Well, maybe not cherished. Stu Hutchinson. I always like taking people to the kennel for the first time. You could describe the Oak Road entrance in advance as much as you like, but nothing could ever really prepare them for it. The look on their faces as they pick their way through people's washing lines as they zigzagged up to the stand. So once you're through the turnstiles, what is it like at Kenilworth Road? that day. It would be entirely wrong to use the word executive, but those boxes on the left-hand side, that was the side we were nearest in the away end. I remember the patio doors nearest us had sort of six blokes, large blokes in Giacomo clothing and uh, in there, and they were uh, really up for it. They were, and they were giving it quite large, at least at first. From about two o'clock, this insane level of 
singing between the two sets of fans, which really doesn't happen. I mean, certainly doesn't happen these days, except for in the most intense environment. Singing about the green houses and some fat bloke who ate all the pies and all those sort of things were brilliant, absolutely brilliant. It kept us completely mesmerised on the event, as opposed to having an opportunity to think about what might happen. Everybody was there, everybody was ready. The players were on the pitch. It was going to be one of those really tense, those really tight, those really cautious sort of derby matches. But it was anything but, because after four minutes, this happened. Free kick towards uh, the advancing figure of Rosenthal. Now Johnson, good try! David looks in despair. To score early at Kenilworth Road, and what a beautiful goal it was. You see Ronnie Rosenthal sort of fighting for the ball in the box, and he lays it back to Jono. We'd seen him do it many times, the shot from outside the box, the low-drilled shot, the, the one into the top corner. He seemed to just... He just... One of those players that... He never scored a tap-in, but then he, that wasn't his position. But if he scored, it was normally... You know, a strike from 18, 20 yards and hit true and, and hard. And uh, this was no exception. As soon as he came onto it, I mean, the, I, can rem- I can remember the hairs on the back of my neck as the ball kind of came out to him in a hurry and he just smacked it. It was just unbridled joy. Frankly, they never really got into the game. I don't ever remember feeling as though the result was in doubt after Jono scored. Di Thomas scored the second one. I mean, I had no memory of him as a player at all. This powerful start. Now Kennedy. Thomas has got there between the two defenders. Thomas, do nothing. What a start for the Hornets. 19 minutes gone and Watford were two goals to the good. And the fun didn't stop there. A certain Mr Peter Kennedy had one of the best two minutes of his entire career. Kennedy was one of my favourite players. And there was just something about Kennedy. And I think Taylor must have absolutely loved him because... He really came into the side as a prominent player during that first Taylor season. He had talent. He had real quality. Couldn't understand a word the man said. He had an incredibly thick Ulster accent. But a really nice, warm-hearted, smiley individual. Always seemed to play with a smile on his face and epitomised a lot of Taylor's philosophy. He was incredibly hard-working. If he popped up, if you gave him a chance, he could strike the ball as clean as anybody. The unbridled joy of scoring those goals against Luton. He kind of, it meant something to him personally. He knew it meant a lot to the fans. It meant a lot to the club. Target is Kennedy. Thomas tried. Second attack by Millen. Third by Kennedy. What a strike by the Ulsterman. And goal number four. Peter Kennedy went round on the left-hand side and he did that sort of cartwheel with his arm to try and feign that he was going a different way. And it's like, I remember doing that when I was seven. And he did it, and he fooled them. And, and obviously we couldn't hear Di Thomas yell, mine, or keepers, or whatever he did yell. They're trying to build it, but they've lost it to Kennedy. Now, can he do something with this? Beautifully cut inside, right footed four! 32 minutes gone! It was just that when the chances came, when they fell, they went in. And it was one of those games. And after 32 minutes, we were 4-0 up. From then on, it kind of... I can't really remember, John, because it was a kind of delirium. There was a sort of delirium as this thing just snowballed out of control. I know it was a long time ago, but memories of the detail aren't particularly strong with our fans who are helping us with this retrospective. 
such as Stu Hutchinson. Doesn't remember the details, but, but certain things live long in the memory. I don't remember much about the goals at all, to be honest, because it's so low down there. I remember after one of them, sort of scrambling over all these other Watford fans, trying to get to the other end of the Oak Road end, sort of that, that corner where the main stand was. That's, that's where most of the real Luton Herberts were. And I just remember everyone with two fingers up in the air, just trying to get as close as possible to the Luton fans. So it was your fingers that they could see, you know, your two fingers that were the ones that they could see. Colin Mace remembers a noise. Well, not quite a noise at all, really. What I do remember was the silence. I mean, obviously not where we were, because you were under that very low roof and you made an incredible amount. It was so loud, the celebrations. As that died down and the ball is brought back to the centre circle and put on the spot so the game can be restarted by the Luton players, there was just this deafening silence around Kenilworth Road. There wasn't even, like, booing or complaining. And, and as each goal went in, the silence got deeper as they just thought, oh my God, we're getting spanked. We're getting an absolute spanking. By this point, I'm sure Lenny Lawrence, the Luton manager, and all the Luton players just wanted half-time to get there pretty quickly. But it got a little bit weird at half-time. I remember the police horse coming on and surrounding the Luton dugout to stop their fans getting at Lenny Lawrence. You know, the Giacomo lads in the patio doors, I suppose, with, with their sort of lofty status, they were allowed to drink their lager out of glassware, but they didn't throw them at us. They didn't throw their sort of cooking lager bottles at us, which is, which is quite sweet of them, really, because, you know, by this point, there was a police horse playing right mid for Luton, so you think, if you know, surely by now anything goes. But they, you know, they didn't throw their bottles at us, which, I, you know, I sort of thank them for, really. Well, I think the horses, they were a great memory of half-time, but we were actually dodging bricks. I mean, you know, it got, got really... Naughty. There was quite a lot of things lobbed at us during the half time. Um, obviously, we could have gone 5 0 up had that penalty been given. I mean, these Luton fans, these half a dozen Luton fans in the patio doors nearest us, they were having a terrible time in the second half. I mean, it, it looked like it was the worst £12 they'd ever spent. The only person probably having a worse time was, was my, my Spurs mate who spent the whole second half sitting down. Uh, with his head in his hands, you know, thinking, "Oh my God, I'm going to, I'm going to die here in a provincial skirmish of which I've got no real interest anyway." The final whistle blew, and Watford were, of course, the four-nil victors. It could have been five, depends how you look at that penalty. Was it a penalty? Was it not a penalty? Was it not a penalty because the referee decided that maybe things might get a bit hairy if the game got any worse? But it had been ten years, and it was such a momentous win for Watford fans. Here's Matt Rousen again with how he felt at that final whistle. It was remarkable and it was cathartic. I think we knew at the time, but it's ever, even more evident since, that it was a parting of the ways. You know, we'd been in the same division as Luton for, for, for most of my Watford supporting life. You look back at certainly at Graham Taylor's spell and we gave as good as we got, actually, although my recollection is that we lost most of the time, but we didn't really. But it was a tremendous, <laughs> a tremendous landmark event. And, and the fact that we're still talking about it so many years on is testimony to that. The thing about having Graham Taylor in that season playing that game against Luton was that there was no one else really in the world who felt that rivalry more than him, I think. He would never come out and say it because obviously he was calm guys, it's just another game and it's we just want the three points. Are we? But, you know, he would have... He knew what that rivalry meant through that first period of management at Watford and I'm sure that he managed to communicate that. The win was in the bag, but it was time to go home. But the trip out of Kenilworth Road, through the gardens, getting to the coaches and the cars and getting home wasn't a spectacular journey for many Watford fans. 
Stu Hutchinson again. It was only four steps from the exit to the coach, like the width of a pavement, but we still hurried it. You know, he still bounded across the pavement to, to get onto the, onto the coach. And, you know, as we pulled away, that coach felt like, it felt like the last helicopter out of Saigon as we moved away. You know, it, you looked out the window and occasionally saw the odd flash of yellow darting around, running around, yelling, trying to find sanctuary. And you thought, well, you just thought, oh, God, I hope to God they're, go- they're going to be OK. Mike Smart again. Deciding near the end that my shirt should go under my jumper for the walk to the car and not over it. We were held back in Oak Road for 10 minutes. Nothing unusual about that. And frankly, it was just another 10 minutes to celebrate with my brothers and sisters before going off on my own. Then they let us go and I turned left and set off up Dunstable Road. And where I expected to see lots of police, there were none. Instead, there were groups of Luton fans who had gathered, some innocently mourning the afternoon from hell, others with more sinister intentions. One bloke built like the proverbial brick item of construction, crossed the road towards us and started punching people in the head at random. The bloke right in front of me copped it. Thankfully, he seemed okay, and most of us ran. My car was fine, as was I. Two CVs aren't known as getaway vehicles, but this was probably the fastest one had been driven since for your eyes only. Did the scenes take the shine off the results? Temporarily, yes. I was worried that someone might have been badly hurt. But the lingering memories of the day are happy ones. What an occasion. Ten years worth the wait. As Matt has already said, it was sort of a legendary game that we've been talking about for well over 20 years now. But not only that, many Luton players that didn't even play are reminded about that game. Pete Fincham. I remember playing a five-a-side game and Marlon Beresford was in goal for the for the opposition some years later. I didn't realise it was him, but until someone pointed out that you know he'd been a been a great goalkeeper. So of course I had the opportunity to talk about the uh, the cup game against them in uh, 2003 and Stephen Glass's free kick and that wonderful game. And then of course he goes, "Oh Watford, why is it every Watford fan talks to me about the four 0 against Luton? I wasn't even there then." And it's a, it's a common problem for ex-Luton players when they meet you Watford fans that they'll always be talking about the four 0 like they're in some way accountable, having turned up half a decade later. And for many Watford fans, this, this isn't a rivalry that they know. Uh, I wasn't at this game, and I'm of a certain age to remember what it was like in the 1980s. And apart from the game we played them at the beginning of the season, it's been a long time since we've played each other. So is it a rivalry? Do you miss it, Matt? I don't miss it. I think I always quite enjoyed the rivalry, even you know, the difficult bits, including that walk, you know, the running the gauntlet back to the railway station after this particular game, which was hairy. But has Pete Fincham missed the rivalry? Rivalry is part of life, and, and football is so much worse for not having proper rivalries. And I've got to say, the last last ten or so years has been lacking something for me because I can't get excited about playing um, QPR in the same way as I get excited about playing Luton. And the rivalry between teams is what is part of the toxic intoxication of us all. We, we're rational people. And then we're rational, and then we're irrational, and then that's largely built around passion. And with passion can be any reason for having such passion. I mean, people are passionate about art, God knows why, but they are. And taking away that passion, even temporarily, somewhat diminishes life a little bit.